This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm Jessica Morrison. Type 2 diabetes is a medical condition in which the body is unable to produce enough insulin to combat the buildup of glucose in the bloodstream. The condition can lead to symptoms of constant hunger, fatigue, weight loss and potentially death. Diabetes is the world's fastest growing chronic condition, with the number of people with type 2 diabetes growing in each country. In this episode, I was joined by experts Dr. Ryu Takichi and Dr. Hani Al-Salami from Curtin University to discuss the growth of type 2 diabetes in the population and the work they're doing to prevent and treat it. If you'd like to find out more about this research, you can visit the links provided in the show notes. So, Ryu, the number of people with type 2 diabetes is growing. Why is this? I think the two main factors, sugar and lack of exercise. So sedentary lifestyle that makes people, you know, just sit around and do nothing. That it's the main driver and also the sugar intake. So people just don't realise, I think, how much sugar they're taking each day. You know, those soft drinks and cookies and snacks. So those two are the main drivers, I think. And honey, how would uh, those who have been diagnosed with diabetes feel about their diagnosis? You can imagine that no one likes to be diagnosed with diabetes. No one likes to feel that they're sick and they've got a problem that they would never fix. And they just have to take tablets for the rest of their lives. Look, when you talk to people, a lot of them tend to try to be positive, but then when you know them for years and years, you get to realise that they have other problems. So, for example, the disease itself, it does have other things that affect their performance and behaviour as humans, you know, even intimacy. There's a lot of things that can be interfered by by having diabetes, by having that. They can be too lethargic, they can be, you know, they fall asleep on the couch, they can't, they can't function as normal, they have got the energy they had before, and this means that the interaction with the kids or the partners is not as good, which means that the partners now is not as happy, which means it just gets <laughs> snowballing. Snowball. You know? And it's like everything else. And that's where targeting it in a comprehensive, multifaceted approach is far more robust because you're not looking just for sugar in the blood. You're looking for the whole person. And that's where, for example, in the hearing space, the term we've been doing is, is counseling is as important as treatment. And the reason is because if you don't counsel them and their life goes downhill, then the treatment and the therapy and the side effects and everything else just go downhill. You've developed nanotechnologies to treat type 2 diabetes. Can you explain what a nanotechnology is and okay. how effective it could be in treating diabetes? Yes, so one of the major obstacles to getting drugs where they're meant to go is the way the body absorbs them. So for example, if you take a, tab, a, a Panadol tablet, the Panadol tablet it goes all the way to your tummy, to the gut, and then it breaks down and some of the drug gets taken in, some of the drug gets lost. And when the drug gets taken in, so for example, if you're taking it for a headache and you want it to go to the brain, it's not gonna just go to the brain, it goes to everywhere else. So that creates huge problems to us in terms of getting the right dose because you know that you're gonna lose so much of it, so you have to give it a bit more to achieve optimum results. And, um, and toxicity. So for every dollar we spend on a drug, we spend another dollar fixing problems that drug caused in the first place. <laughs> so that's, so to overcome such an obstacle, a professor called Thomas Chang, who was my ex-boss actually, he, he started the process of encapsulating enzyme or hormone or drug to make it more targeted. So for example, these nanotechnology are creating capsules, but at nano scale. So if you, if you look at them, it's like if it's in the water now, you can't see them. It's, it's so tiny, no scale. But the idea of it is by doing it this way and by designing the right 
mattress that, that encompasses the actual drug, you design it in a way that when you give it to the patient, it pretty much goes specifically to where it's meant to go more than anywhere else. So you minimize side effects. So, so that is one, one example of, of a drug that um, Rio and I have been working on for the last so many years in order to make it more selective to the brain rather than the rest of the body. And by doing this, well, we maximize effectiveness and, and also maximize safety problems. And so in the treatment of diabetes, how is it, why is this more effective targeted treatment so, beneficial? Yes, so, so one site of in, our interest in treating diabetes is the brain. There's all this talk about the insulin resistance of the brain, which Rio has been driving in terms of the pathophysiology of it. And that then necessitates the drug to go to the brain more than everywhere else. So I've been using nanotechnology established in my lab, um, collaboration with drug companies that synthesize and customize our, our instruments and platforms for the last 10 years now in order to, to design the right vehicle and delivery system to take that specific drug right into the brain where it's meant to be doing the best effect for diabetes. Why for diabetes do we need treatment to go to the brain? What's going on there that affects the rest of the body for diabetes? Yes, so this seems to be a site where Lots of control over sugar regulations happen, and um, it's still a work in progress. So these are theories that we hypothesized that by by controlling where drugs go, it could be the brain, it could be the pancreas in type one, for example, and so forth, that can maximize impact and make the drug clean areas in the brain. The brain is a very complex system. It's quite hard to get there. It's not designed to take things. If anything, it's to block things from getting through, but sugar to feed it. So that's hence the the sophistication of an advancement of using that technology specifically for that drug that we believe in to play a major role in calming down lots of problems with diabetes such as inflammation for example which, is, which, which underpins a lot of diseases including diabetes. What are we looking at for a timeline for when consumers can use it? The thing with nanotechnology is you know, it started, it's not a new technology, it started 40 years ago and only for the last I would say five years a drug or two started showing up in the market. And the reason is because the old technology relied heavily and still on, on using solvents and things that they're not completely safe, but it's a cheap way to do it. That's why in the lab at Curtin, I made sure when I came in here from, from Canada that the system, the setup is robust and TGA aligned. So the, the regulatory here will be happy to for me to, 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 to produce the drug. So, so the setup that we have is quite unique and that's how we managed to get the, the, the industry contracts and stuff like that. But it does take a lot to prove safety. Safety remains the biggest thing. And, and with that, you, know, you don't want to treat someone from something and then cause another cancer or something else. You, know, you have to fix a problem and just keep it fixed. So, yeah. so maybe five <laughs> years, 10 years, if you're blue sky thinking. I hope, I hope that I hope that would be the case. But it's, as I said, you know, it's, and it's not just that, it is getting the right drug out. And that, and that there remains the biggest pain the next to deal with because there's so many possibilities. That how would you know that will work and not that? And even if you're going to know this works, what does? For how long? Is it two days, two, twice a day, and that's it? Or is it forever? Or is it? So it remains very, very um, difficult. I mean, I mean, insulin, for example, it was discovered in 1921 as an injection. And for the last hand, almost 100 years, they've been trying to come up with something else that you can take orally because no one likes to be injected the whole time. It's caused a lot of problems and we still haven't got there yet. Mm. There is a clinical trial at the moment, but every time they try it, it just doesn't cut it. Or It's not as effective as what an injection is. And one of the biggest problems uh, that facing us, for example, with, with treatment is that human is so different. 
So our physiology is so different, and not only this, today is different than yesterday, this morning is different than, than tonight because of the, the circadian rhythm. So there's a lot of hormones, steroids, for example, get secreted far more in the morning than at night time. Um, cholesterol goes high at night. So it just depends on the time of the day. And our, um, for example, if you're anxious or we've got a problem, consumption of sugars changes. So how can you tailor to that, you know? <laughs> There's no sort of one size fits all approach really when it comes to dosage. Probably one of the hardest thing is getting the dose right and getting the dose to where it's meant to go, not the whole body, which we have at the moment with capsule. I mean, capsule and tablets have been around for two, three hundred years and they're still around. And you think, oh, with technology, we should have been all, we're still, you know, we're still that. So, work in progress. So you've both researched the link between type 2 diabetes and other health concerns, so specifically dementia and hearing loss. Can you both broadly explain why diabetes seems to be connected to so many other health issues? I think yeah, the, the main causal link between diabetes and dementia is not really established. So diabetes has lots of complications, so it causes lots of inflammation, it also induces oxidative stress, it also causes like um, dysfunction in the vasculature, so your blood vessels get quite damaged. So those are maybe at the moment thought to be the main reasons that may be linked to the brain disorders like dementia. But yeah, the main things, yeah, we still don't know. We're still researching. Yeah. So think of diabetes as just one symptom of diabetes, really. So diabetes itself is a multifaceted pathophysiology that causes so many damages and it just happens to be also causing high blood sugar to, to go up. And that's why a lot of the pathophysiology of diabetes underpins many of the other conditions such as dementia. So as exactly as Rio was saying, that when you have a damage in your blood vessels in the brain, for example, if you fix them up, we calm down some of the symptoms of diabetes. If you have uh, high sugar levels, if you have inflammation, excessive stress, then your hearing also get impaired because these cells don't like to live in an environment where there's so much, too much sugar in it, um, too much free radicals, oxidants, and the likes. So if you've got diabetes, you're twice likely to get hearing loss. So one of the proposals, for example, for treating hearing loss has been antioxidants. They've always been proposed to be a potential treatment for hearing loss because what they do is they vacuum the harsh environment these cells live in in a way to calm them down and keep them happy. Okay, I like the way you've said that. <laughs> keep, keep the cells happy, keep them happy. Yeah. What drives your research into diabetes and what outcomes are you hoping for? So, well, I'm nutritional biochemist by okay. training, yep. but I'm more doing the neuroscience research, so oh, wow. dementia research. My driver for diabetes research is Probably it's the prevalence and it's the effect, the, it's, it's affecting so many people around the world, especially in Australia and you know, some of the developing countries are now getting uh, increasing those prevalence as well. So that's probably the main driver. And what about you, honey? Similar. So uh, just the, the fact that you know, I could be next, you know, any one of us could be next, um, my kids could be next, you know, father, mother and so forth. So if I've got a kind of a healthy family, in, in, in relative speaking, but um, but it is, someone has to get the work done. And unless we kind of look at the bigger picture and see globally when you say a prevalence of, you know, 1%, 10%, 15%, you know, hearing loss, for example, one in four Australians will have hearing loss by, by 2050. So it seems to be, although it's obvious, many people still don't realize the impact. And I think we just have been quite lucky to see things that other people have not seen and be lucky to have such a cohort of people that I work with personally anyway 
that I've absolutely been very fortunate to meet and work with and be accepted to feel with. So that's that's my drive, and I love it. I just enjoy it so much, I think. I'm just too obsessed with my job, but it's great. That's awesome. <laughs> but sort of like what you were saying, Ryu, about the prevalence of it, but then what we've just spoken about previously, it can lead, it almost, it, it leads to so many different, can potentially lead to so many different other yeah. um, diseases. So it's sort of if we can hit this one, then it could, you know, help so many people in the future. And right? it is important to look at it from a bigger picture, not just one problem, but what is it wrong there? So you can see a problem, but it doesn't mean that everything else is fixed. I mean, at the moment, you can have heart problems and you wouldn't even know that you have them, you know? So, so that's the kind of a bigger picture approach. And that's why, although my background with Ryu, for example, are very different, we work very closely together and, and we complement each other and not only us, but other, others as well on the team. What do you wish you knew about type 2 diabetes 10 years ago? Not sure, actually. Well, I guess in terms of the diabetes research, it hasn't really progressed much, yeah. you know, past 10 years. We never made like a breakthrough. It's still incurable. Um, so... I guess my reply would be, I wish if I knew back then what I know now. Yeah. Because if you think about it, for example, exactly as you said, the first line of treatment of diabetes is called metformin. And metformin is a drug that's been around for 50 odd years. The other one for the, the mainstream treatment for type 1 diabetes is insulin. And insulin was discovered in 1921. And we're still injecting it just like we did in 1921. Yeah, so there hasn't really been... No, no progress. Is it just what, what makes it so tricky? It's complexity. Yeah. So, so we, we thought, oh, if you just fix the insulin, everything is fine. But then type 1 diabetic patients who t continuously take insulin pedantically, half of them have fluctuation in their glucose levels outside the healthy norm, and they still die 10 years younger. So despite them being doing the right thing for themselves, we've got the biggest discovery of insulin, which I think is one of the major discoveries of all mankind personally, they're still, they're still not surviving long enough and not doing well in comparison. To a healthy person of the same age and yeah. demographic. So would you say, personally, that you think the future of treating type 2 diabetes specifically is around this nanotechnology? That's where the future lies in terms of targeting it more effectively? I think it's one part of the equation. I don't think it's enough by itself. I think it's having people like Ryu and others that... Um, they understand the pathophysiology more. So from my side, I just, all what I know actually is just how to deliver a drug. That's, that's my thing, in a safe in a safe and effective manner. But then in terms of the every pathophysiology, every damage at every level of the body, that's not my forte, that's someone else. So, so I think to answer your question, I think nanotechnology is the future, but not just the only future. I think there's, there's many other aspects, critical aspects and even more important, like what Ryu is doing, for example which understanding what happens not just in the body, in the brain, which I believe to be the center. I mean, the brain is the center of, of our controlling other bodies and, and our, all our functions come from the brain in terms of the control, so. Rihi, what, what do you believe is the future if you're looking at it from your speciality, I suppose? It's a bit difficult. So <laughs> I think it's gonna be the, you need to change the lifestyle. That's the main thing, but it's very hard to do it. That's why we just rely on the drugs. So nanotechnology or, you know, those uh, new technologies will help how those drugs will work. So we don't have to take every day or you don't have to, you know, take so much of it. So that's the uh, main feature, I think. 
it sounds like such a multifaceted approach, mm. right? You were saying obviously nanotechnology is probably considered one part and then you're saying it's sort of the lifestyle factors is the other, it really is. And then collaboration between specialities as well, right? Mm. That's where it's at. I think collaboration is the only way forward. And, um, you know, you kind of just have to ignore the egos and just get focused on getting the job done. And as I said, you know, I've, I've personally been very fortunate to have met what I've, what I've got today and very keen to progress. What can we do now to safeguard our health into the future? So if you could give the people of today three pieces of advice, do this, this and this, to ensure you don't develop type 2 diabetes in the future or other chronic illnesses, what would, what would your advice be? That's pretty difficult because we haven't solved this um, disease for 10, 20, 30 years and three things won't probably do anything. But simple answer, live well, uh, well, eat well, sleep well, Exercise well, maybe, yeah. Just do whatever you think is healthy for you. Yeah. And that's important. So one aspect of it is, so for example, I'll give you a quick example of how what we thought was healthy is actually not healthy. For example, heavy exercise is not is not a good thing for you. And I know it sounds, it sounds weird. Cool, but... that's great. I haven't really <laughs> been doing much exercise lately. Um, so. and, and, and recent studies show that very intense exercise for a very short period of time produce far better results in terms of control than the, you know, the two hours in the gym that you, you really invest every day, five days or six days a week. So I guess probably the, the biggest thing for me is, is, is people need just to, be, to educate themselves of what it is, what does it actually mean to live healthy. And it's quite different between people. And you need to be ready if things don't go your way. So I think being prepared mentally is, is a key factor for survival personally. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for coming in today. Really, really fascinating episode. And um, it sounds like there is a very bright future with how this research is progressing in this space. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And if you want to hear more from experts, stay up to date by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.